We have been looking at, at a, a, a short series um, teaching using the phrase, a greater than. On five occasions, Scripture talks about someone being greater than in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our first study was that Abraham, Jesus was greater than Abraham because of the covenant. The covenant, the Abrahamic covenant is marvellous, but the covenant, the new covenant is far greater. Then we saw Jonah who preached and the city repented. And we saw how Jesus is greater than Jonah because he has come and the world is turning to Christ. Also, Jonah was lost for three days in the sea in a whale or a large fish. Jesus was three days in the ground and rose again on the third day. And then we saw Jacob who dug a well and people were drinking from that well hundreds of years later, but it wasn't living water. It was water that quenched natural thirst, but Jesus comes and gives us eternal life, welling up within us to eternal life. So we have two more to go. You'll be, I hope you're not be thinking, oh goodness me, I hope that comes quick. But this evening, I'd like us to look at the phrase where the phrase is used, a greater than the temple is here. In the scriptures, on each of the five occasions uh, that the phrase a greater than was used, four of them were to do with people. And um, I think Sunday week in the morning, I have been invited to speak, we'll be looking at a greater than Solomon is here. And I did a little bit of preparation for that. And I found it very moving, that particular study, and um, look forward to sharing with you, God willing. But this evening, we're going to look at the phrase where Jesus says, a greater than the temple is here. So I'd like to read to you, if I may, I'm going to read to you from um, Matthew chapter 12, and look at the context where these words were used. And then we'll exalt the Lord Jesus as we look into the Scriptures. That's Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain to eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day, yet are innocent? I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. And of course, Christ was speaking of himself. One greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This starts off as a very ordinary sort of event and out of it bursts some tremendous teaching and recognition of Christ. Very simply, it says there that Jesus was um, with the Pharisees, uh, Jesus and his disciples, pardon me, were going through a, a field of crops and they just took some of the, the, the crops and they rubbed it in their fingers and they began to eat it. Very simple, it says there, they were hungry, they picked some heads of grain and ate them. And the Pharisees were such a miserable bunch. I mean, imagine being a Pharisee, dear helpers. I'd, I think I'd rather support Arsenal, you know, than, no, Scott's not here, uh, than do that. They actually started to nitpick. They said, oh, look, 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 look. come on, Jesus. Come on, tell them. They're doing something wrong. They actually declared 
that to take the wheat and to rub it in your fingers and to eat it was work. Now, you could eat on the Sabbath, but I think it was the actual rubbing of the corn that was declared by the Pharisees to be work. They were obsessed with the Sabbath. They were obsessed with keeping rules. When you don't know the Spirit of God, when you don't know Christ for yourself, it's so easy to slip into rules and regulations. Now, if you look at my life closely, and please don't, you'll find there's a lot of things wrong with me, you know? But the grace and the mercy of God comes to my rescue daily. But the Pharisees, they were just out to get them. Um, and in, in, to counter this thing, they said, look at your disciples and what they're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. And then he gives them two occasions when something worse than that happened in the Bible that the Pharisees had decided to ignore because it didn't fit in with their particular ideas. He gives two illustrations. The first one is he reminds them that King David ate the shrewbread unlawfully. It's in 1 Samuel 21.6. We find that in the tabernacle, on the table was the shrew bread. That was a special bread. It wasn't to go in and eat. It was a special bread. And we'll maybe look at that in a, a moment. And David's men were hungry. They were fainting. They'd been fighting. They'd been in battles. And they went in and they ate it. And Jesus said, listen, you don't condemn David. You're not saying, oh, look what they did. You're not finding fault with him. But you find fault with my disciples. And what David and his people did was far, far worse. And so he uses David as an illustration of how inconsistent they are. You, you know, if you lean towards being a Pharisee or a critic, just stop. Think about your own inconsistencies. None of us are the finished product. That's why Christ is coming back, that this mortal will put on immortality. It's going to change in the moment, the twinkling of an eye, that, that the work will be complete when Christ returns. Then he pulls another illustration from the Old Testament. Haven't you read that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day, yet are innocent? Well, of course, the, what would happen is this. The priests could eat the bread that was in the tabernacle um, or the temple. They were allowed to do that. They were allowed to have parts of the sacrifices, etc., as part of their wages, if I could put it in that way. And Jesus just said, listen, they eat the bread and are innocent. David and his men ate the bread and you don't condemn them. So why are you condemning my disciples for doing this little act of rubbing maybe in their fingers some grain and eating it? And then he said, haven't you read in the law that they, on the Sabbath, the priests desecrated the day yet are innocent? So they desecrated the Sabbath and yet Jesus said they were innocent. So this idea that you had to keep the Sabbath, so Jesus just blows that out of the water. He says they broke the Sabbath, they were allowed to do it and they were innocent when they did it. That didn't mean to say that the Sabbath laws that the Jews had were all of no value, but it was this extra magnification of the details of the law that caused such a burden to people. And then he comes and says those tremendous words. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. And that's that phrase we're after. And he was speaking about himself, one greater than the temple. Now, you will know if you just watch the TV, 
how the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, now that is part of the wall of Herod's temple. When Titus in AD 70 came to Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple, that wall was left. And of course it's there, it's a very special place um, for the Jewish people. And we're talking about that wall. But Jesus comes and he says, a greater than the temple is here. Well, you, you, I mean, the temple was everything. It was the, the centre of their life. It was the, the, the centre of Israel's life. It was the temple where God met with his people. It was a temple where the sacrifices took place. It really was the central point. And it seemed that a rabbi, which he would have been to them, could turn around and say, someone greater than the temple. What do you mean greater than the temple? God's presence is in the temple. God gave the temple, as it were, to Israel to mark us out. The presence of God is there. In the, old, in the, pardon me, in the, day of, uh, in the time of Exodus, there was the tabernacle, which was a mobile structure. And God's presence was found in the Holy of Holies. So you would have different courtyards. I'm going to try and map it out for you. So you would have, for example, the outer court here. This isn't to scale, by the way, or else I'd end up through that window. Okay, so we have the outer court. We would have an inner court. And then over here, we would have what was called the Holy of Holies. And that is where the presence, the Shekinah glory of God would be. So the high priest once a year was allowed to go in. That's where the veil was. Do you remember Easter, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom? Well, that is the veil that would separate God and man. And rightly so, because man was sinful and God was holy. And only once a year could the priest go into the Holy of Holies and he would take blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, um, which is uh, in there, which is uh, two angelic creatures with their wings coming over on a, a box that contained manna, Aaron's rod, and also the Ten Commandments. If you've seen Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the same one, but Harrison Ford was not in the book of Matthew. I can assure you, I understand he's in London at the moment, but not there. So that's what we're talking about. And what would happen is the priest would be able to um, come to here, then the high priest could go even further. So there was separation and there was division. And what Jesus came to do was this. He came to show that we don't need to go to a place. We don't have to get a bus up and all go to Jerusalem, although it's a good holiday, I'm sure. You know, we don't have to do that because a greater than the temple is here. Greater in what way? Well, the temple was a place of sacrifice. Jesus became our sacrifice. When Jesus died upon the cross and took our sins upon him, our sins were forgiven. Every year, sacrifices would take place in the temple. Every year, animal upon animal upon animal upon animal. And that was to emphasise to Israel the seriousness of sin and also what was going to happen later upon the cross when not the blood of animals would be shed, but the blood of the Son of God would be shed. So he was greater than the temple in the sense that he was the very indwelling of God in him. He was God. It wasn't let's go to the temple because God's there. We come to Jesus and he is God. God is not in Jesus. Jesus is God. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Spirit. They are together. The Godhead 
is as one and yet functions in three unbelievably exciting ministries. And so in this situation of criticism, in this situation where they are um, having a go at the disciples, Jesus says, listen, if you think that's bad, listen to this, a greater than the temple is here. You see, it's always been in God's heart to be with us. You know, you know, someone once said, you know, if God's not close to you, who moved, right? Well, it's a very good phrase, that. But we find in the Garden of Eden, it says that God would come down, would walk with Adam in the cool of the evening. It was always in God's heart to have fellowship with us. Sin arrived, and of course, then they were driven out of the garden. God told Moses to build the tabernacle, which had to be at the centre of the camp of Israel as they travelled around the wilderness and moved into the promised land. God always wants to dwell. He wants to be at the centre. The, the temple was built in Jerusalem, which was to be the centre. It was Herod's temple. Then, of course, the one that we're familiar with here would have been, um, that would have been Solomon's temple, pardon me then, but Herod's temple now. Do you know how interesting to know that Herod's temple only stood completed for, I think it was eight years. Eight years. They put the last screw and brick down and eight years later, the Romans took it apart. That's all it lasted for. And in that time, if the presence of God had, was ever there, at some point, it had left. In John 1.14, it tells us there, the Word, which is Christ, the eternal Word, tabernacled amongst us. It's always been in God's mind to be in the midst of His people. That's why the scene as we were worshipping, you would have felt maybe God's presence here at the very centre of what we do. Um, his name, Emmanuel, means God with us. Jesus was not only God with us, but He was our tabernacle, our temple. He was the, the very way to God. The tabernacle had a pathway to God's presence for the priest. We don't go to a tabernacle, which is a tent. We don't go to a temple, although we call this Kensington Temple. I, I often wonder what visitors must think. But anyway, we know in that way. But it's the way to God. There was a pathway and Jesus is that pathway. So a greater than the temple is here. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. I think Pastor Colin mentioned that verse this morning. I am the way, the truth and the life. And he is. So we don't need a temple to approach God. We don't need to bring any more sacrifices. We don't need any. There's no priest in this house. I'll tell you, we've got some pastors and maybe the odd evangelist, but you know, we might even have an apostle lurking around somewhere. But listen, there's no priests. The only priest in this house is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no holy place. This isn't a holy place. This isn't a holy place. That's not a holy place. He's our holy place and greater than the temple is here. When Solomon built his temple, it was a tremendous thing. And, um, you know, David didn't build the temple. David wasn't allowed to build the temple. God said, no, you've been a man of war. You have blood on your hands. And he didn't allow him. He allowed David to collect the materials for building what we know now is Solomon's temple. And when it was completed, a tremendous thing happened. It says in 1 Kings 6.1, they began to build the temple. And verse 3 says, the temple was finished, sorry, the temple was finished in all its 
detail. Now, it took seven years to build Solomon's temple. Then it says in verses, in chapter 8, 10 and 11, so they began to build the temple, chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 3, pardon me, the temple was finished in all its detail. Nothing was missing. There was nothing wrong with the temple. The temple or the temple was not inadequate, but it was temporary. These things were waiting for the arrival of Christ to come. And then it says in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, it says here, when the, peace, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, and notice it's not a temple now, it's a holy place. The change what happens. While they were building it, no, no, when it was finished, it became a holy place. I said, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And so what set this building apart, this temple? Solomon's, I'm not sure this happened with Herod's, but with Solomon's, when the priests withdrew, and what a lesson that is for those of us who are on the platform, sometimes to stand back and just let God do his thing. So then the glory, the cloud, the same cloud that had been with them in the wilderness, that had been with them during day, the pillar of fire at night, the presence of the same cloud that came to the Mount Transfiguration, the same mount you see come in the cloud. Everywhere you see the cloud, you can think of God's presence. And so here we have this earthly structure, seven years in building, beautiful, finished, complete, absolutely marvellous. We'll talk maybe a little bit more about this next time when the Queen of Sheba arrives in Jerusalem. But it's there, complete in every detail, but it was temporary. It wasn't the finished product. The finished product, well, pardon me, I think I've used the wrong phrase. The finish of this is not a building, but a person. And so Jesus is our sanctuary. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is our true bread. He's called the bread of life. Then the temple, there would have been the candlestick. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. For every piece of furniture in the tabernacle and the temple, Jesus was a fulfillment of that. Those things were there to help us identify Christ, not to help us understand the tabernacle the other way around. They were there. And we see that candelabra and we think, Jesus, the light of the world. We see the bread and we think, Jesus, I am the bread of life. We see the blood going into the Holy of Holies and we look to the cross and we see Jesus dying for us there. Seven years to build that way. As I said, Herod's temple only stood eight years as a complete work before its destruction in AD 70. Hebrews 1.11 says, They will perish, but you remain. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Verse 12 of Hebrews. So what's the point? What is Jesus saying here? Is he just, just, having, a, just having a go at the temple? No, no. Jesus was not unhappy with the temple. It was God's inspiration that the temple and the tabernacle existed but they were temporary. Do you know, when things become more important than Jesus, you've got too much religion. You know, I sometimes wonder, most of us sit in the same seats every Sunday, don't we? Well, one Sunday I'm going to move them all around and make you sit somewhere else. And then we'll see how religious you are. 
Well, I always sit there, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. That would be just childish. But sometimes we can just be a little bit too religious about things. And Jesus said, listen, the temple served its day. The tabernacle served its day. You know, the priests served their day. The sacrifices served their day. The shrewbread served its day. The candlestick served its day. But a greater than the temple is here. And they stand there and they had the faintest idea what he was on about because they were locked on to rules and regulations. Acts 17, 24 says this, God does not live in temples built by hands. God does not live in temples built by hands. Ephesians tells us that our bodies are now the temples of the Holy Spirit. When did God leave the temple? I'm not sure, but by Good Friday, he'd definitely gone. By Good Friday, Luke 23, 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. But the great truth is this, again in Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Christ. So that veil, that tabernacle with its outer courts, that temple with its outer courts, the ladies' courts, the Gentile courts, all the rest of it, and that, as you go further, further, it seemed that God was just separated from us. And we were. Because at this point, all we had was a temporary answer for sin, which was a day of atonement and the death of an animal whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. But when Christ came and he went to the cross and he shed his blood there, how does the writer of the Hebrews says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, why, why am I not cowering back? Why am I not saying, oh, I can't talk about entering into God's presence? Gordon is a very simple person. He is a very simple person. <clears throat> so how come I have confidence? My confidence isn't in Gordon Neal. That went out the window in about the third year of secondary school. My confidence is in Christ and his blood are greater than the temple is here. Oh, friends, I don't want a temple It'll look lovely. I don't want priests and all their garments. It'll look just theatrical. I don't want any animal to lose its life. No, certainly don't. I don't need any of that now because a greater than the temple is here. And then in verse 10 of Hebrews, it says here, pardon me, or verse 20, I can't read my writing. It says there that we come to God by a new and living way, opened up for us, through the curtain that is his body. So we enter by a new and living way, not parting a natural curtain, not like the high priest pushing his way through, praying. Do you know that the priests were so frightened that they would be struck down dead if they went into the presence of God, that they used to have a rope put apart around their waist and they would go in. And the idea was, that if they did get struck down dead by God uh, because they hadn't fulfilled the um, rituals required, nobody would go in and get you out. They'd pull you out on the rope. That's how real they thought about God's presence through that veil. And what does the writer say here? By a new and living way, 
open up through the curtain that is His body. His blood and His body shed for us upon the cross means I don't have to go anywhere else. If you're getting a coach trip up to go to some holy place, you, you know, I'm not going. I don't need to. Say, oh, but Gordon, we're going to go to the place where Jesus um, fed the 5,000. I may have been there actually. I went to Israel sometime. That's fine. It's nice. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but as long as you know, it's just remembering a historical event. He fed the 5,000. I don't want some of that bread and fish. I want Jesus. I go to a wailing wall. I've been to the wailing wall. Do I want to go to the wailing wall? I've been, but I want Jesus. So when I want, you know, this, no, 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 friends, a greater than the temple is here. Let's check our hearts, first of all, that we're not critical and pharisaical to other people, okay? I'm not saying that wrong is right. I'm not saying that. But sometimes we can be critical to one another. The Pharisees did that. And Jesus showed their weakness with the illustration of David's men and also the priests on the Sabbath. But the most important thing is this, that we focus on him. A greater than Abraham, we have a new covenant. A greater than Jacob, we have living water springing up to eternal life. A greater than Jonah, we have one who rose from the dead three, three days after his death. Jonah died, Jesus is still alive. And now we have a temple, beautiful to look at, marvellous. And if it were still standing today, it would be empty of God's presence. For Jesus has come.